All right, I'm going to go ahead and get started because I probably won't finish this lesson. I keep saying that. The journey gets longer and longer, but we're going to do our best. Uh, we are working our way through The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. This is our eighth lesson. Lord willing, there will be two more in this series. Last week, if you recall, we left uh, the scene of Doubting Castle, which is a big, scary place that houses two giants. The giant Despair and the giant, his wife, Diffidence, or timidity, fearfulness. And these giants were, um, were very unkind to Christian and to Hopeful. Christian and Hopeful had wandered through Bypath Meadow. They had gotten off the path and they ended up in the dungeon of this scary place. The giant grabbed them and threw them down in the belly of their castle. And he did all sorts of things to them. He beat them at the behest of his wife. He showed them the bones of other people who had wandered into his territory And then at the wife's suggestion again, the giant comes down and encourages Christian and Hopeful to take their own lives. Like, you don't have to do this. You could end it today. You could be done with this. And this is really a picture of a Christian who falls down into the path of depression, of despair. And how despair can seem like a locked dungeon out of which you cannot extricate yourself. And it goes on for days. And the text makes it feel long and dark and miserable. Literarily, Bunyan is doing something there. He's, he's teaching us a lesson. But we also noted that their escape begins with prayer. They cry out from their position of hopelessness. And uh, they resist the temptation of the devil to take their own lives, to listen to the lies Of despair, giant despair. And so they begin to pray. And it specifically says they begin to pray about midnight on a Saturday. Which is the beginning of the Lord's Day. And Sunday comes. And the Lord uses that as the occasion for Christian to remember that he had a key in his pocket. In his breast pocket. And he pulls out from his bosom this key called promise. And he recalls that he's had this key the whole time. He's had the promises of Christ the whole time. And those are the things that allow him to escape from the dungeon, to get out of the castle, to get to the gate leading out of the territory. But the gate sticks. It's very hard, but eventually it does come through, showing how depression isn't just a quick fix. It often is difficult, but they're allowed to or they're able to escape And so now moving on from this scene, we move on to the delectable mountains, which is such a wonderful description. Delectable, it's an older word. We don't hear it often used for anything other than perhaps some delicious foods today. But it comes from an old Latin word, delectare, which means delightful, pleasing, pleasant, fair in the older sense of the word. Beautiful, bringing joy. And these mountains are significant. So we're reading an allegory, which is where everything means something deeper. And mountains in this text, as within Scripture, are significant. 
So in Scripture, think about it. Uh, Eden is pictured to be up on the side of a hill or a mountain. There's rivers flowing down from it. Ezekiel 28 and other places picture Eden as the mountain of the Lord. And then they go down. They're kicked out of Eden and they have to go down. And then there later they have to go down from Egypt and brought up out of Egypt. This up and down movement is significant. And they're brought out of Egypt up to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai we have this, just like in Eden, communion with the Lord and with His people. And a moment or a, a picture of revelation, of knowledge. And so going up is going up in knowledge and going towards the Lord in presence with Him. We have the same thing in the New Testament. We have Jesus going down right from his baptism in Matthew 3. He goes down into the desert led by the Spirit where there's temptation. Satan's all around him and he successfully goes through that period of temptation. Comes up to the mount on which he gives a sermon. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And there we have the revelation of the Lord. And so we have this theme going on and on. All the way to the the end of the book, Revelation 22... We have the presence of the Lord, Jerusalem, that new heavenly city, Mount Zion, coming down. And the presence of the Lord fills the earth like the waters cover the sea. So this is theme going through. Here we have in Bunyan, similar um, significance given to some mountains, as we will see. These mountains of the Lord, this language reminiscent of Psalm 87. The psalmist says, His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of you, O city of God. They are beautiful mountains, these delectable mountains. They're bountiful. They're filled with gardens and orchards and fountains. They are a place of refreshment, a place of delight. And here the shepherds keep watch over the flock. What is Bunyan picturing here? He's picturing the church from the perspective of a mature believer. Previously, we had seen him uh, talk about house beautiful as the church through the eyes of a young believer. And there were good things. There were some cool things in there. There was an armory and there was all sorts of fun stuff. But here we have the delectable mountains from a seasoned, more mature saint looking at the church, they're Christian and hopeful. Their faith has grown. Their understanding of repentance and of holiness has matured. Their love for the king has strengthened. They've walked the path longer. They've grown more in their understanding. And the shepherds here are affirming of what Christian had learned at House Beautiful. They remind him that these mountains are Emmanuel's land. And they are within the sight of Emmanuel's city, the celestial city. From the mountains, from the vantage point of being on top of the mountain, you can see the journey, the journey's end. You can see the destination. There's joy in these mountains. The king, again, is Emmanuel, which is God is with us. He is the promised Savior. There's a text in Ezekiel chapter um, 34, 29, and in the section in 34, where it talks about um, Israel in terms of flock 
and pasture and shepherd language. The text says, I will raise up for them a garden of renown and they shall no no longer be consumed with hunger in the land, nor bear the shame of Gentiles anymore. Thus they shall know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, Emmanuel, and they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord God. You are my flock, the flock of my pasture. You are men and I am your God. This language is loaded. This language is shepherd, pastor, flock, sheep is very significant in the Bible. We even have Jesus speaking of himself in shepherding language. I am the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for the sheep. I know my sheep and they know me. They, they hear my voice and they know me and they follow me. They shall hear my words and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. He is the good and faithful shepherd. And the shepherds gladly speak of Emmanuel, the king of the land, the good shepherd. They stand in the way, the journey, the path leading to the celestial city. And they welcome pilgrims in and they point pilgrims to Emmanuel. And as pilgrims are welcomed to the delectable mountains, Christian has questions. He wants to talk to the shepherds and he wants to ask them questions about the the way, the path. And he he asks them first, is this the way? Am I on the right road? Is this the way to the celestial city? Am I heading in the right direction? And, of course, he he is. He asked this, unsurprisingly, because he had just recently gone out of the way into Bypath Meadow and landed in a dungeon. And so he's learning his lesson slowly, as some of us slowly learn that lesson too. To wander from the way is to bring danger and peril and the opposite of delectableness, whatever that would be, undelightfulness, unpleasantness into our life. And so Christian is more alert. He's more cautious. You see him growing. He's maturing. And they assure him, you are on the way. He's on the right way. Proverbs fifteen twenty four: The way of life wins upwards for the wise, that he may turn away from hell below. There the up and down language again. Up is a good thing. He asks next, how, well, how far away? How much, how much longer do I have to go before I get to the celestial city? You ever feel that way? How much longer? How long, O oh Lord? How much further? And the shepherds respond with a warning. And they say that not all who attempt towards the city arrive at the city. Sobering. He says, only those who persevere to the end will make it. He says, it is too far but for any of those who shall get thither indeed. Again, there's the cumbersome language. We have to work our way through a little bit. But Bunyan is telling us that it's a long way for those who aren't going to make it, for those who won't persevere to the end. But for those who trust in the king, trust in Emmanuel, he will shepherd you all the way there. And this this is a stark contrast that is given. It's it's a theme that's throughout Scripture of, of the righteous will persevere. But the wicked will perish. There's a dichotomy. There's a, you could divide all of mankind into two categories. Those that will hang in there and those that won't. Um, Hosea 14 verse 9. Who is wise 
Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know these things. For the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous will walk in them, but the transgressors will stumble in them. Will you walk in the way of the Lord or will you transgress? The Psalm 1, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked, the unrighteous, shall perish. Psalm 37, the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the upright and their inheritance shall be forever. Only those truly trusting in Emmanuel will make it all the way to the end because they will be held up by Emmanuel's power. One commentator on the Pilgrim's Progress named William Mason says this, Oh, how many professors, those who profess Christ, grow weary of the way and fall short. They fail to come all the way to the end. Though the way be too far or too straight and too narrow, many set out but never hold to the end. Yet all who are begotten of the word of grace, born of the spirit of truth, shall persevere to the end. And being kept by the mighty power of God, through faith, shall endure unto eternal salvation. The very trials and failures that bring discouragement to these would-be pilgrims cause them to turn away and fall back. Yet they serve to strengthen True believers, causing them to look unto Christ, who is the source and foundation of their strength to persevere. Sounds like James. Brothers, count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, steadfastness, perseverance. Another commentator says the certainty of final perseverance, the the final endurance of true believers is exemplified in their preserving. Regardless of what's happening outside of them. Many hold the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, but are not interested in the privilege. That is, the, the true believer acquires new strength by his trials and by his mistakes because they drive him back to Christ, the source of our strength. He possesses an increasing evidence of his beholding to grace. Christian asked the shepherds if the mountains offer any relief to pilgrims who are weary and growing faint on the way. It's a good question to ask of churches, of pastors, of shepherds. How do you help believers along their journey? The shepherds assure Christian that the Lord has charged them to not forget to entertain strangers or passers-by, pilgrims. It's the reference to Hebrews 13. It says, let brotherly love continue. Don't forget to... Be hospitable to or to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels of the Lord. Churches are called to be hospitable 
The delectable mountains are open to all who would profess the name of Christ. Moving on, Christian and hopeful, like at House Beautiful that we previously discussed, aren't only asking questions, they have questions asked of them. The shepherds, the the leaders of this church, through the eyes of a new convert, need to feed and guard the flock, and so they rightly question these new passers-by. And these shepherds are specifically representing the pastors, uh, the office of pastor. Bunyan probably has in mind John Gifford, his own Bunyan's own pastor, under whom he served for a while there in Bedford in England. And the shepherds are given names. Uh, The names being knowledge, experience, watchful, and sincere. And these, Bunyan are, Bunyan's teaching us that these are essential to the, the pastor's office. Right? Knowledge being the knowledge of the scriptures. You don't want to go see a, a dentist who doesn't know much about teeth. <laughs> you don't want a cardiologist who's only uh, possessing theoretical knowledge of anatomy. Right? You, need, you don't want a pastor who... His, own, his one job is to open the Bible and tell you what it says. And if he doesn't know anything about the Bible, that's not good. So you need knowledge. I mean, this is, Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, 1 Timothy 4. says, till I come, give attention to the reading of Scripture, to the, to the exhortation and to doctrine. Later in that chapter, take heed to yourself and to your doctrine. It's not simply enough to know individual chapters and verse in Scripture. You have to have some semblance of connection, some sort of doctrinal grasp. How do these texts work together? How do they paint a unified picture of truth revealed from God? Experience. It's the second pastor, shepherd. It's kind of like... Again, 1 Timothy 4, Paul tells Timothy, Let no one despise you for youth, but set an example to them. Show them by your conduct. They may try and disdain you because you're not quite as old as they are, especially in that culture, age equals um, maturity and privilege. Youthfulness is to be rejected. New things are not any good. He's saying no, by your life, by your conduct, your love, your spirit, your faith, your purity. Later, 2 Timothy 4. Make these, meditate on these things and give yourself entirely to them, Paul says, that your progress may be evidence to all. I would hope that we would all be able to find a church where our pastors are growing. If you find a pastor that feels like he's arrived, find a new pastor. Speaking of that, watchful is the next shepherd. Second Timothy again, chapter 4, verse 5. Timothy, be watchful in all things. Endure affliction, do the work of evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Similarly, pastors are told in Hebrews 13 about their role. 
The author says to the congregation, Obey those who rule over them, be submissive to them, for they watch out for your souls and must give an account. Sloppy, unconcerned, aloof, distant pastors are negligent. You can't be a good shepherd if you're not among and watching over the sheep. Shepherd can't be a shepherd from in the house watching through the window. Which goes to sincerity. Sincere is the final shepherd. That word is used in uh, 2 Corinthians 1.12. That we, Paul says we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity. Sincere is a it's a it's a neat word. Um, it comes from uh, Latin sin, meaning without, and serre for for wax. Is what potters would do is if they if they were shady potters and they made a pot that once it was baked got a crack in it, they could take wax and fill in the crack and, and put a little dirt on it and make it seem as if it was a wonderful pot without a crack. Nobody would know. Uh, and so, but what they would do to test it is they would take that pot and they'd put it in or by the fire. And if there was wax, it would melt and fall away, revealing the crack. And so if it passed the fire test, it'd be stamped sincere, without wax. That's where we get our word sincere, genuine. It has been tested and is proven to be true. And that's what Christians in general, but specifically pastors, are called to, to be. We're not... Again, 2 Corinthians 2, we're not peddling the word of God, but with sincerity as from God, we speak in the sight of God. There's a realness, an authenticity, a truthfulness, a genuineness. These shepherds encourage Christian and hopeful to stay a while, to find solace, to be Refreshed to be restored, to enjoy, quote, the good of these delectable mountains. And the mountains themselves represent sermons, if you will. They're each a picture of their own, a lesson to be learned. And they expound different passages of Scripture. Some of them are words of warning and caution. Some of them are admonitions. Some of them are encouragements. Some of them are reminders. Some of them are are expositions of the the promises of Christ and and the sheep, that is the church, the flock, the the family of God. They feed upon the mountains. And they need a balanced diet, do they? They they can't stay in one mountain the whole time. It's kind of like the pastor who has his hobby horse that just preaches the same sermon every week with the same point. It could be all about repentance or all about politics or all about whatever. You have kind of a lopsided flock. They don't have a good balanced diet. We need to, shepherds move their flock to where the green is. And they move them around, giving them the diet that's needful to them. And if you recall, if you, when Christian was at the house interpreter previously, at the, towards the beginning, he was eager to get out. He was eager to leave, to get on his journey. The interpreter asked him several times, stay. And he wouldn't do it. He wanted to move on again at Palace Beautiful, which represented the church from the eyes of a new believer. Christian was ready to get on with his journey. He was ready to move out. He was encouraged to stay. But he wanted to move on. 
Well, here he's arrived at the Delectable Mountains. Again, the church from the eyes of a mature believer. And now he's ready to stay and see all that the shepherds would have to show him. He knows the value of stopping, of hearing, of being refreshed, of lingering, meditating on the lessons from the Word of God. Being patiently prepared will allow him to be ready for what arrives next on his journey. And it's from the mountains that the pilgrims have a better view of the world. They're up higher, which is important we talked about earlier. And it's from that height, given the revelation of God, the sermons from Scripture, they can see more accurately the dangers that lie around them. They can see potential dangers that that are going to be on the journey next so that they can try and avoid them. And the shepherds take these pilgrims, Christian and hopeful, to show them some, some of the wonders. They take them to... Another, another mountain or a hill called Error. The Hill Error or the Mount Error. And sermons can and indeed should teach us and help us to avoid drifting into error. We see in Scripture all the time warnings, cautions, admonitions. Scripture reproves us when we begin to wander off the path into Bypath Meadow. It corrects us. It shows us the way back. It instructs us how to keep our way right. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for correction, for reproof, for training in righteousness, that we could be equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3. We learn. We learn from the mistakes uh, of those in Scripture. We learn from the fellowship of the body, from the mistakes of others around us. That's part of generational faithfulness is older people, more mature Christians, speaking to the younger ones saying, I still have the wounds from the sins of my past. Learn from me and avoid these pitfalls. I love you. Don't do what I've done is a loving statement to give a younger person. Every parent knows that. Nobody, nobody wants to see those that have gone off the way. The shepherds take Christian and Hopeful to the top of the hill and they let them peer over the cliff down the mountain. And they see at the bottom several men who are, quote, dashed all to pieces by a fall they had from the top. They lie dashed in pieces. These are the remains of those who had tumbled down into heresy. Listening to the false teachers, those who aren't true shepherds on Emmanuel's land. It's similar to all sorts of things in Paul's letters. We had warning about straying from the truth, about spreading error. He mentions Hymenaeus and Philetus as examples of false teachers avoid profane and idle speech they increase to more ungodliness they spread like a cancer Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort they've strayed concerning the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened and they try to overthrow the faith of some 2 Timothy 2 so we must be 
careful about those who would distort the truth to their own liking. Peter warns about these things, those that twist things to their own destruction, contort and manipulate Scripture. John tells in his letters, don't, he's writing to the churches, and he said, don't, 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 even, don't even entertain these people. Don't open the door to them. Don't even let them in. They're going to their own destruction and they love to bring others with them. Heretics are never content to be alone. They want to gather those with them. So also remind us to be thankful to the Lord for the faithful shepherds that he does give to his church. I'm thankful for the men that have kept watch over my own soul. They guide, they teach, they feed, they protect the flock from error. They remind us of the necessity of preaching Christ faithfully and fully. Paul says in Colossians 1, Him, Christ, we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. And to that end I also labor, striving according to His working which works in me, Mightily. Christian and Hopeful move on and they continue their survey in the Delectable Mountains under the guidance of the shepherds. They move uh, from the first mountain to a second called Mount Caution. Mount Caution. Proverbs 21.16 says, A man who wanders from the way of understanding will rest in the assembly of the dead. Take heed, lest ye fall. We must learn. Be cautious, be wise, be circumspect, be watchful, as one of the pastors, one of the shepherds is named. Christian doesn't recognize at first the proximity of the tombs he now sees to the dark castle from which he had just escaped. He asked, he asked the shepherds, what, is this, what does this mean? And as, Christ, as the shepherds explain, Christian regretfully remembers, the tombs are in the castle yard of the castle of giant despair. And they're shown to Christian. And those who wander around those bones are those who, like Christian, found God's way to be rough and sought an easier way. They had wandered from the path. They had wandered from the way of understanding. And now they're in danger of death, of eternal death. On the one hand, this appears to be a lesson received too late, but Christian and Hopeful have already stumbled upon the grounds of Doubting Castle. But it's a very timely lesson. Pilgrims must remember the missteps of others and learn from them and be prepared for the danger that lies ahead. There are more temptations to come. You will have, if the Lord tarries, more temptations to turn off into Bypath Meadow, to go to Castle Despair, to get stuck in the slough of despond. They're coming. And sermons... 
are helpful to use God's word to help us to evaluate clearly errors that have been made in the past by others, errors from our past that we have made, and to learn from them, and to go a step further to remember and be thankful for the mercies of God that have brought you back to the way. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned our own way. But the shepherd brings us back. It's all too easy for us to reflect upon the mistakes in our life and to minimize them. You know, oh, yeah, that was just that was a little. I had a little, a little hiccup, a little stumble. No big deal. Or we say, yeah, I, I blew it there, but I'm a good, strong Christian. I brought my way back, myself back to the way. You know, now it's God's grace that you've been brought back to the way. We can lose sight of the gospel. Christ can become less precious to us. We become as those wandering around in the tombs. We can fail to keep hold of the key of promise that unlocks the gates of Doubting Castle. And so remained in the prison. We can become blinded in the darkness. Remember it was dark in the dungeon. Without hope and without light. So we need these sermons from the delectable mountains to remind us that we have to be quick to confess our sins. Scripture cautions us. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1.8 It also comes with a key, a promise. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9 and 10. And hearing these words, Christian and hopeful are overcome with tears. The words of the shepherds move them. There are times when we sit under the preaching of God's word where the Holy Spirit takes the word proclaimed like an arrow to our heart and convicts us. It's as if the preacher is preaching to you, to me. Surely we've all experienced that. You think, surely he sat in his study this week and was thinking of me when he wrote that point. It's as if the pastor has a window into our souls to see our thoughts and see our lives. And he's almost calling us out from the pulpit. This precise Heart work is not craftiness, shouldn't be, among a pastor. It's the skillful work of the Holy Spirit using the Word of God, which is sharper than any sword. The Holy Spirit can cut to the quick better than any crafty pastor could. can divide soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intention of the heart. No mere man can do that. Christian and hopeful hear the words of caution from God's word and they realize, looking back, how great a danger they were in when they willfully wandered into Bypath Meadow. Sometimes we don't recognize the danger until we're on the other side of it. And you can look back with gratitude and say, 
man, the Lord was my strong tower. He protected me in ways that I was not even aware of at the time. And, and doing that ought to keep our hearts tender, sensitive, full of gratitude to God. Being quick to flee from sins and to repent. Moving on. They continue with the pilgrims through the mountains. They take them down to the bottom where they see a door in the side of a hill. Which is interesting. They open the door. They're confronted with a, with a frightening experience. They see only darkness. But they smell. They smell brimstone. You know, kind of stinky, sulfury smell. They hear rumblings of fire. And they hear the cries of the tormented. This is uh, a picture. It's a sermon. Scripture not only shows us the danger of straying into bypath meadow, straying into sin and error, it warns us of where that meadow ends. In judgment. In wrath. God's, God will... Pour out his wrath upon those who persist in sin. Scripture speaks clearly about the certainty of coming judgment. The way of life winds upward for the wise, that he may turn away from hell below. There's the up and down movement again, found in Scripture. Bunyan's description echoes the terrors of hell found in Scripture. Psalm 11, upon the wicked, God will rain coals, fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. Revelation 21, verse 8, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars will have their part in a lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Bunyan, in his autobiography, recalls hearing and trembling at, hear, at, at, at listening to such dreadful words as a child. He says, Also, I should at those years be greatly afflicted and troubled by the thoughts of the day of judgment, and that both day and night, that I should tremble at the thoughts of these fearful torments of hell and of fire, still fearing that it would be my lot to be found amongst those devils and those hellish fiends who were there bound by chains and bonds of eternal darkness unto the day of judgment. It wasn't the first time in Pilgrim's Progress that Bunyan had pictured such things, obstinate and pliable. Remember them at the very beginning? Um, he warned his neighbors obstinate and pliable, about if they stay in the city of destruction, they will sink lower than the grave into the place that burns with fire and brimstone. But they couldn't be bothered. Obstinate didn't want to hear it. Pliable was unconcerned. On the hill of difficulty, he told two friends, Timorous and Mistrust, if they go back, if I go back to my own country that is prepared for fire and brimstone, that's the city of destruction, I shall certainly perish. 
In the valley of the shadow of death, Christian was confounded as he journeyed past the mouth of hell. And out of that mouth came flame and smoke and sparks and hideous noises, Bunyan says. So this door on the side of the hill is a warning not to trifle with sin. Sin is a a byway to hell, a way that hypocrites go at, the text says. Hypocrite is somebody who pretends to be something he's really not. It's possible to live in such a way as to deceive everyone around you and even deceive yourself. To think, boy, I I got it under control. I'm I'm a good person. Scripture all over warns about hypocrisy, the danger of those who seem to try to draw near to me with their mouth, near to God, honor God with their lips, but their heart is far from God. Their lips profess the praise of God while the heart embraces sin. It recalls earlier in Interpreter's House, you remember the perhaps most terrifying image in the entire book? The man locked up in the iron cage. He said, I too was once a professor on the path, a pilgrim on the journey. But I gave myself over to sin and to lusts. And he's locked himself in a cage and he's unable to free himself. Sin becomes the thing of the desire of his heart becomes the thing that is the means of his own imprisonment. God gives him over to the thing, the desire of his heart. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, Hebrews 10.31. We must flee from sin, not be so bold as to think that we're immune to it or we've outgrown it or that it, we can handle it. We're more mature now. We can, we can get a little bit closer to Bypath Meadow. Just, just come off the way just a little bit. I've heard uh, one pastor say, if, if you don't want what the devil's cooking, then you don't need to be in the kitchen smelling the gravy. Like we need to be far, far away. Don't, don't go near it. Learn, smell the fire and brimstone on the side of Mount, Ca- Mount Caution. Flee, flee from it. Lastly, near the end of the Delectable Mountains is another mountain called Mount Clear. And this provides perhaps the best view. The top of the mountains, um, from the top of the mountain, the shepherds test the skill of the pilgrims looking through the, the looking glass. I mean, telescope kind of thing, binoculars maybe. Mount Clear represents our unobstructed view of Christ and his glory. Especially as we mature in faith near the end of life's journey. As our time on earth grows shorter and shorter. The allure of the world grows a little bit more dim. Our desire for the glories of Christ in heaven grows stronger. The perspective glass, the looking glass, is the application of God's word to our souls. One commentator says it's, The glass of God's word of grace and truth held up 
by the hand of faith for the eye of the soul. Through it, we see the hope of eternal life in Christ. Scripture shows us errors and cautions. It uncovers the depth of our sin and wrath and judgment. But it also takes us up into the glories of heaven and gives us a glimpse of that celestial city and the king on his throne. The text says that Christian and hopeful, they're not able to steadily look through the glass. They're a little shaky. It's a reminder that each of us has remaining sin that doesn't allow us to perfectly view. We need help. We need growth. Similar to language of 1 Corinthians 13, which I hope to preach through eventually, get there eventually. Paul says, for we now see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. They can't see through the glass as perfectly as they'd like, yet they continue to look. And there's reward in glimpsing of the glory of the heavenly city. This glimpse of glory on Mount Clear comes through clear teaching, through the shepherding of our four pastors. The shepherds are showing them what's their job. Paul speaks of the shepherd's task to take things that are deep, the hidden things, the mysterious things, and reveal, unfold, display the mysteries of the gospel. To stewardship that's given to the men of God. To reveal, to expound, to unfold the glories of Christ from God's revelation. And the pilgrims are grateful for what they have learned on this delectable mountain. They desire to see others come to see what they have seen. They eventually descend the mountain singing. Delighting, right? They've experienced the delectable, the delightful things of God and encouraging others to seek wisdom and guidance from the shepherds. And before they depart, the shepherds prepare them for the journey ahead. They give them a note, a note on the way that's coming. They say um, to stay on the path and find instruction. They give them a warning of the dangers that lie ahead to beware of the flatterer. And a warning not to sleep on the enchanted ground. A little foreshadowing. And they give them a prayer that God will go with them and bring them safely to their journey's end. The shepherd's sermon is clear. We must look through the lens of Scripture to see the King, to see Christ, to remember the celestial city and the journey ahead. We must remember that the, the byway to hell is not far away. But there is a journey and an end. That this world is not all that there is. Even when we're tempted by the world and our view of heaven is shaky and our gaze is uncertain, we must look to Christ. He's the one who can delight our soul. He's really the delectable one. The delightful one. The one on whom our gaze is fixed then makes, grow, makes the world grow dim. Our view of heaven will grow brighter and brighter. It's, it's, it's really 
said well by the old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full at his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word.